Hello, this is Pastor Ryan of the Fostoria Baptist Church here to welcome you to the Aroma of Christ podcast. To for whatever local church to which you belong, I hope that this helps you to serve that church well as you listen to these sermons that come from the pulpits of the Fostoria Baptist Church located at 524 West Lytle Street. God bless. Hello, our scripture reading this week is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Genesis 4, 1 through 8. The passage here comes after the creation account in Genesis 1, where everything was very good, where Adam and Eve were placed into a garden where they walked with God unashamed. And they have all sorts of fruits and trees they're allowed to eat from, but one tree that they're not allowed to eat from, but the serpent deceives the woman, the woman gives to her husband, and they both eat together and fall into sin. They are promised, though, that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And so there's a great optimism at the beginning of the chapter section that we're reading today that ends up disappearing by the end, but ultimately is restored as another child is born. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. We'll be looking today at verses 32 to 35. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is the last major speech of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. He speaks about the end. He speaks primarily about waiting for and enduring unto the end. In verses 32 to 35, he gives us these words after having just speak, spoken of his return and coming. Verse 32, now learn a parable 
of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Father God, as we come to your words, and we come to your son's words, both of which will never pass away because you both are same being God, who doesn't lie or change his mind, who doesn't make a promise and not fulfill it. So there is nothing in your being that would cause you to be dishonest or that would prevent you from doing what you seek to accomplish. We ask, Lord, now that this word, by your spirit, would have its effect on us, would change us, would give us hope for the fight, and ultimately lead us to faithfully serve Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, our God. Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. I've been noticing something about myself recently. It has a lot to do with reading. It has applications to lots of other areas of life. I will more quickly read a 97-page book than 97 pages out of a 300-page or more book. You start reading that short book, there's a certain feeling of accomplishment and a certain feeling like the end is near, so you can keep going, enjoying the parts you enjoy and maybe just getting through the parts you don't. But the 300 or more page book, the end is harder to see. Being able to continue to work through a hard sayings might not keep going. I was recommended a book at a conference last year, and I got it from the library. It was a book of fantasy. I brought it home and was like, I don't know. The person who recommended it to me said that the first half of the book kind of could drag on, but then it picks up and is great. And I'm sitting here thinking 200 pages, 100 pages, dragging 100 pages, good, that's great. Bring the book home and it's 1,000 pages. It went back to the library having only read about 100. But we tend to be like that, not just with books, but with lots of different things. Exercising, disciplining ourselves in terms of dieting and actually seeing a goal and end in sight. Running a race, 
the finish line's on the horizon and doesn't seem to be getting any closer, it can be hard to keep going. As opposed to if the goal line was just up here. And all of you are running where you are and you can see it, right, as clearly as you can see me. We've looked at Jesus' coming and it be public and visible. We've looked at the fact that it'll all be worth it when we just see his face. But even then, if that seems ever so distant, continuing to endure could be difficult. And I think that's then where this passage comes in. To tell us that Jesus is at the doors. He is near. It's coming. Begins in verse 32 with a simple parable. We read there, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, Ye know that summer is nigh. The parable seems pretty simple enough. Jesus is looking at his 12 disciples and saying, when you see the fig tree, and the branch starts to become soft, and even starts to blossom and produce leaves, you know from that, a sign of the times, that summer is near. You and I don't necessarily think about fig trees very often. We do have reason to be thinking about signs of seasons and signs of summer. Just this Wednesday, I sat down to read my Bible and was surprised to see the sun already rising. It was rising significantly earlier than a couple of weeks ago. It's a sign that the days are lengthening and ultimately a sign that spring is approaching. We'd see similar things when the flowers start to climb through the snow. And they start to come out and blossom. That spring is indeed coming. And Jesus then says that just as there are signs to indicate that summer is coming, and just as we see signs that spring is coming, even now, there will be signs of his coming. And so he applies the parable in verses 33 and 34. So likewise ye. When ye shall see all these things, know that it is near. Even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So here Jesus says, in the same manner as how you see things about the fig tree and know summer is near, so you will see things, all these things, and you will know that it or he is near, is approaching. In fact, it's so near 
and it's at the door. And then he says it again. Adds a little bit more intensity. Just to make sure that it's clear. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. He gives his amen to it before he directly says it and saying, Verily, truly, I say to you, this is somber words, serious words, certain words that he wants his disciples. These two verses do bring some interpretive difficulties around some of their phrases. In particular, all these things, it or he is near, and this generation. So looking at it in the order in which it comes up. See, first, all these things, which is mentioned in verse 33 and then again in verse 34. Has to be things that Jesus is talking about prior to verse 32. Has to be something in regard to the labor pains of verses 4 to 28. Or even more, verses 4 to 26. But I think it has to exclude the thing that it's pointing to. So he's not referring to things that happen in regard to it is near or he is near. Things at the door are excluded. And I think this has already been stated. At the things at the door, he... It's Jesus. It's verses 27 through 31. The coming. The quickness. No, a couple weeks ago, if you had asked me about this generation, I would have said the generation that saw the things of verse 33. I've come to think that it's only with great pain and labor that we understand it any, as anything more than the generation alive at the time Jesus is speaking. That's how Matthew has used this term, this generation, before. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Now instead, the Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she traveled for the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, one greater than Jonah is here. This interpretation is certainly not without difficulty. The most significant difficulty that fits in in regard to how I have been preaching through verses 4 through 26 is the statement in verse 21 that I referred to as resembling and pointing to the great tribulation that we still await in our future. And certainly in all these things that 
hasn't yet been filled. But I do think that D.A. Carson is right to say, going with the same type of interpretation, that all that verse 34 demands is that the distress of verses 4 to 28, including Jerusalem's fall, happens within the lifetime of the generation then living. This does not mean that the distress must end with at that time, but only that all these things must happen within it. So the point there being the last line of the quotation. The termination of all of the great labor pains doesn't have to happen. Simply the labor pains must have begun. The final culmination in the great tribulation referenced in verse 21 doesn't necessarily have to happen for the time of distress to have begun and begun to be fulfilled. Regardless of lots of other things, it is true from Scripture that the New Testament authors knew that Jesus' return was soon. James chapter 5, if you turn there. James is calling for patience and endurance. He's calling for faithfulness underneath trial and testing and suffering. And he says, James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Here is James asking us to be patient and to wait. He's telling us that the coming, the word is perugia, the technical term also in Matthew 24, that coming of the Lord draws nigh, it is near. And he uses as an image in verse 9 then, that the judge standeth before the door. He is near, even at the gates. He is near, even at the doors. You know, in our scripture reading in Genesis 4, Sin was at the door, and it was said to be lying or crouching. Sin was being likened to an animal ready to pounce. So 
animal-like imagery here because Jesus isn't looking to pounce. He's not looking to attack. He's at the door to gather us, to gather his people, to bring us indeed to a world where sin will no longer attack. Back in Matthew chapter 24, the passage we've looked at today ends in verse 35 by looking at the certainty of the parable and its application, the certainty of what would happen. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The words of Jesus, here and everywhere, are more certain than the ground under our feet. They will never pass away. Heaven and earth might pass away, and indeed we know from the rest of Scripture that heaven and earth will pass away, and a new heavens and a new earth put in their place. But Jesus' words will never pass away just as God's words would never pass away, just as scripture would never pass away, because Jesus's words and scripture are both the words of God, the word of the one who never lies and never has his plans stopped. Ironside says about these words, his return is certain, for his word can never fail. His return is certain, for his word can never fail. There's probably something that sits a bit uneasy in regard to the statement that Jesus is near, that his coming is near to the point that he said 2,000 years ago he was at the very doors. It doesn't seem like to us that 2,000 years is a very short amount of time that would justify the nearness involved in what's going on. You know what else I've observed over the course of time? When we were children, and we had much less time that we'd been alive, every little bit of time seemed like forever. But as we get older, we've experienced more time, we start to think of the same length of times as being a lot shorter, to the point where we even talk about time flying. If we take that observation and then think about the fact that God is eternal, in fact, he is outside of time altogether. If we even further think about the fact that we were created so as to be eternal beings, we who are truly born again, who belong to Jesus, will die 
be risen again to live forever, then the same amount of time doesn't seem quite as long. Doesn't seem quite as unending. We start to have the perspective that 2,000 years is actually infinitely small in comparison to time that never ends. And that argument is not one that I came up with. It's Peter's argument. It's the argument he makes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll find that Peter is responding to people who say, where's the promise of his coming? Things have gone on as they have since the beginning of creation. It's almost as if they're saying, if it's near, why hasn't it come? Second Peter 3, verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? One day says a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day definitely doesn't seem so long if we think about the last 2,000 years and say it's been two days. It's near. It's at the gate. Before we keep thinking about that reality, I want us to also notice in verse 9 why from the human perspective it looks to be delayed in the first place. Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He's not being slow to fulfill it, but instead he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. From a human perspective, it seems that things are delayed, that's even God being patient and gracious. That's him showing long-suffering and giving more from 
temporal perspective time. Time for people not to die in their sins, but to reach repentance. It's giving time for humanity, individual humans, to recognize the sin we do, to recognize how it separates us from God, to recognize how there is nothing that we can do to make up for it, and to instead reach repentance. Repentance being a turnaround, turning from ourselves, our sin, and our attempts at making ourselves better to Jesus Christ, who has died, bearing the punishment so that all who would believe in him would have life. I think it's important that we as Christians remember this delay and its purpose. And it was so that we could reach repentance. I think it's helpful for us as Christians to remember this delay in terms of also remembering that that graciousness and patience is God's heart for the world now. And it should be ours too. It should be ours towards our coworkers and neighbors, people we see regularly and places we frequent. It's also important for us to think about in this context today, because there might be some of you who haven't reached repentance. There might be some of you still looking to yourself, trying to make yourself better and present yourself before the Lord pure. And all you'll end up finding is yourself clothed with nothing. An inadequate covering. Or you'd be embarrassed to stand in God's presence and know that he is just and right to condemn you to hell, torment, and fire. What seems like a slow time is an opportunity for you to come to salvation and you to come to Jesus Christ. Speak to me today. Text or call me. Find out more if you need to. Allow me to walk you through what the Bible says about salvation. Today is the day. Now is the time. whole question we were looking at that brought us to 2 Peter 3. Intentionally left for last because I think, brothers and sisters, the challenge for us is to actually remember that eternal perspective on the promise. And Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is written on our hearts but there's a ticking time clock in our bodies. 
hard to find the eternity that God has written on our hearts and remember that perspective of being with him forever. When our bodies are decaying, when suffering comes in, when so far we've only experienced up to 100 years of life and so don't have a concept for eternity directly in our experience. If the hope is to not feel like we're looking at a thousand-page book and trudging through, but trying to understand that it is indeed near, then we need to understand this perspective that God has upon it. So what would we do? We'd have to start with prayer. We're not going to change our perspective on our own any more than we made ourselves Christians on our own. If we need Christ's righteousness to be righteous and to be declared righteous before God, then we also need the Spirit's help in us to be able to have the right perspective and fight the right way even now. We pray and seek communion with the triune God, knowing it is by the Spirit's work that we will remember. We will remember what God has done and how long of a benefit it is. But there's more to say because the Lord has a way of using means. Means that he tells us about in his word about where this grace would meet us. It does meet us in his word. The word that reminds us of Christ and his beauty, that reminds us of Christ's coming, that reminds us that we were not intended simply to suffer in a world cursed by sin, but to enjoy eternal communion with the Lord. The primary way in which the Spirit speaks to us is through the word of God. And so if we expect to grow and mature, if we expect to be more than just a Christian tossed to and fro by the wind, then we must seek him in his word. Another often neglected path that the Lord walks to give us grace is one another. We weren't created to be lone ranger Christians. It's not me and Christ. It's us and Christ. It's hard to keep this perspective in us. So maybe there'd be times when obnoxious Oliver is simply going out and still seeking to live for himself, doesn't want to pick up his cross again. And needs to be reminded. Light, momentary, present suffering. Eternal glory. Maybe there's a situation where ruthless Ruth has to go over to Stinky Pete and say, Yes, the situation you're in is hard and I want to mourn and grieve with you. But don't lose hope that Christ's coming is near. That this affliction is but 
temporary. That in the grand scheme of eternity, it is not even a drop in the bucket. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, all of the affliction that he went through as being a light and momentary affliction, which worketh a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Cain had sin crouching at the door, looking to have him. We instead have Jesus at the door, looking to gather us in a world where sin doesn't exist. In a world where he is, there's a wonderful, wonderful worship of him forever. This light and momentary affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal look of glory, weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, do not lose hope. Jesus is even now at the gates. Father, we ask that you would grant us this perspective that we need eternally. You would give to us the reality of knowing that the lifespan we live here in this world cursed by sin is nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. A place where righteousness dwells and where we see you. Father, we do thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. This is Pastor Ryan again. I'm glad that you were able to listen to today's sermon audio. If you would, please do remember that we strive as Christians to be the aroma of Christ to God among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. To some then, that's a fragrance of life to life, and to others, it's a fragrance of death to death. And we don't have our sufficiency in ourselves for these things, but only from God. And so I leave you. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace.